Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today. Tyler Hummel is here to discuss Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation account with me. Welcome, Tyler. It's great to be here, and it's great to talk to you again after about a year and a half since I had you on my podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been almost a year, and and we had a bit of a false start a moment ago, and when we were uh, starting to record the podcast, where uh, you mentioned that time has been a little slippery for us lately, and uh, and how appropriate that is uh, to to mention on an episode where we're going to be talking about creation, a very complicated topic, a topic that I think. Uh, in many ways, more than anything, has uh, made a lot of people question faith, complicate faith, and has changed the way that a lot of people use and read the Bible. So uh, there's a lot to be said about that, and, uh, and I don't want to run too short on time to discuss that. But before we go into all that, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and how faith plays a part in your life? Well, I've been a lifelong Christian, and that definitely plays a part in my in my daily work. I am a journalist with Leaders Media, which isn't an overtly religious website, but it's just a business journal. But on top of that, I do uh, criticism and news for Geeks Under Grace, the Tennessee Register, and Angelus News, which are, all, all of them are overtly religious publications, and I spend a lot of time in contemplative thought about the nature of these questions. I've always been a Christian in some means or another, even when it was kind of a secondary background force in my life. I grew up in the Midwest where pretty much everyone I knew was religious. My household was non-nominational Christian. My grandparents were super Baptist and Methodist. And growing up in the Midwest, I was exposed to a lot of different ecumenical uh, experiences so I there's a lot of Lutheran churches a lot I went to a lot of Catholic masses I went to a couple of Mormon services I just kind of was enveloped in this very complex culture where there wasn't one I wasn't just part of one tradition I was just kind of dipping into all of them but for whatever reason they were all of the more fundamentalist strain probably just because I was mostly surrounded by lay Christians and, you know, when you're around people who have to live very practical lives, who aren't particularly academic, or who just, they, they just need the Bible to be a life application device. So they are not sitting around contemplating the different ways you can interpret Genesis in light of, in light of modern science, which it's not a fault on their part. I don't think they're heretics or, you know wrong-headed because they just don't want to particularly consider that six days in creation is not a literal six days. It's not. It will, you're, at the end of the day, they, the important part is that they believe in the resurrection. But for growing up in that, it, for a long time, it was just kind of a thing I didn't question at all. There were, I, I recall having a couple of memories as a kid where I was, I was like, it's kind of weird, but it, didn't, it wasn't until I was an adult and I started chafing against it that it started to kind of become a problem. I 
did end up doing a little bit of church hopping around when COVID started, right, 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 right before and right after and after, right before COVID started and after COVID died down a little bit. I spent some time at a Lutheran church. I, I really loved the, the liturgy to it, but I found at least with the church I was going to, it was extremely theologically rigid, very fundamentalist. And, and I, I know that's reflected generally in Lutheran theology. If you read the the Lutheran study Bible, it, it talks very poorly in evolution, very poorly mm. of, you know, anything but the word of God, which I understand, but it's, we, if you grew up like me and you're 27 or, or, or really even roughly in my generation, you remember the, the new atheism debates and you remember just mm. the utter bitterness of the, the previous 10 years of, culture wars, science and religion, and nothing got done. Nothing got done watching Richard Dawkins and John MacArthur just, you know, <laughs> viciously maul each other on stage. So I, I, I reached a point where I said just intellectually, I, I, I need to cede this issue to the science side because nothing is going to get done if we spend another decade doing this. And I'm much more interested yeah. in moving forward and finding a tradition that's just agnostic on this question or is a little bit more willing to entertain different ideas. And so yeah. I moved down I moved down south for work, which did not help because every church down here is fundamentalist Baptist or fundamentalist Pentecostal. <laughs> and by some miracle I managed to fall into the one Anglican church in the entirety of the state of Tennessee. So nice. I I've been enjoying that that cuz Anglicanism benefits from the uh I think it's what, is, what do they call it? The the, the three chairs, the the, the three chair uh, theology. I forget the name of it, but they they have a rather rich tradition of intellectualism, and their catechism doesn't require you to be a you know a six day creation believer, which I appreciate because mm. you know it, thank, thankfully you know there's a little bit more of a a willingness to not crack down. Like I, I don't think the Anglican Church of all churches can pretend like it's the one true church of God just because of everything that happened in the history of Anglicanism where, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, they can't be like, Oh yeah, there's no salvation outside of, of a communion with Canterbury. Uh, that, was, that would just be the <laughs> stupidest thing in the world. So they've been more open-minded to it, but a lot of it's kind of my thoughts on this kind of catalyzed about two years ago when I went to the famous creation museum in Petersburg, Kentucky which I don't mm. know if you or your uh, viewers have seen much about it or they've been there, but it is exactly the way I imagined it to be. It is a, <laughs> they have a life-size Noah's Ark and it's, it's a fascinating cultural relic of the Bible belts that it's become a kind of like Mecca to fundamentalism. And you, everyone has to, you know, go there to pay their penance to Ken Ham and, the one and you know the one true faith but i i found the experience very hollow like you know going to a bad christian rock concert like you, you don't you, you feel like you're you know the, you're, you you feel like you should be feeling something but you're not and you know i didn't feel any awe in the experience of seeing a life-size noah's ark it just made it just kind of made the the dissonance a little bit more troubling just because I, I, I think anyone who is either either an atheist or a fundamentalist would generally agree that 
Noah's Ark is kind of one of those spots in the Bible that's a sensitive point because archaeologically there has to be some sort of evidence for a giant world flood 6,000 years ago. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise that entire story just falls apart. Like it's like when, when new atheists talk about like, Oh, Jesus can't be, uh, couldn't have been resurrected because people don't come back to life. Well, duh, that's why it's a big deal. But, <laughs> it, like, but if, if there's something that has a direct date to it and a direct set of consequences that can be, uh, you know, plugged into the ground and dug up and proven, then it becomes a little more problematic and you end up having to do what the, the creation museum does where you have to argue that the concept of carbon dating is a false science and you have to like read the Bible in weird ways to like explain away certain really weird passages that don't actually build up their case. And it, it's, it becomes more complicated the longer you go along. So as for as my base as an like I said, as an adult, I've made the decision that this is just one of those things where I have to cite to see it to science, even though I am a card carrying Christian and I have been my entire life and I likely will be free for the rest of my life. I don't doubt the existence of God. I don't doubt the resurrection. But the idea that the earth is seven thousand years old in light of everything we can currently know about science does not seem super likely to me at the moment. Now, obviously, yeah. you know, science changes. It's possible that, you know, there could be some sort of huge paradigm shift 100 years from now, and everyone's going to be like, oh, you really still thought the world was round back then? But <laughs> for now, I I have to I, I have to find a way to integrate what, what the natural world is telling us, because otherwise we have to assume that the devil has been planting dinosaur bones in the earth to test our faith, and that's... <laughs> Which, you know, as far as far as Revelation goes, that's kind of a really stupid claim. Just if the heavens declare the glory of God, and I don't think the devil has the ability to go in, you know, just place giant lizard bones in the ground because he wants to make us yeah. to mess us up. So <laughs> to some degree, we have to reconcile the two. And as my comment, the comments under some of my recent articles have shown, people don't like doing that. <laughs> yeah, that. I don't know that you can say the heavens declare the glory of God and also the fossils declare the mischief of Satan. I, I don't think that that is uh, a sound reading of what we're really supposed to take away from this earth that we have. And, uh, and you know, it's interesting. You said that there are a lot of folks that resort to, not resort to, that, that's, an, that's not a very generous reading of, of, of how they take the Bible, but they use the Bible as a necessary, literal way to interpret their lives, or as a necessary, necessary, literal way to live their lives like a guidebook, because they need that. Um, you know, there are a lot of things in our lives that feel um, helplessly complicated. They feel uh, impossible to tackle. And we turn in those times to a heavenly presence. We turn to God in those times because we don't have an explanation. We don't know how to deal with certain issues, and that's when you pray. That's what, that's what prayer is there for in a lot of ways. Obviously, there's other reasons to pray. There's other ways to pray. But a lot of people that pray just do it when they just feel helpless, and they can't, they can't take 
this particular situation. They need the help from God to do that. Uh, what that worldview does not necessarily account for is the things that we as human beings can discover. And discovery is present in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that says anything about people finding out things scientifically and that somehow being blasphemy against God. That is not in Scripture. Uh, there's nowhere that says the things that you find out and the things that you learn are bad. Really not in there. There's, there's definitely elements of saying that the devil can deceive you, that Satan is there in some way to, to try to, like, test you. But taking that and saying that uh, any evidence of creation being any older than six or 7,000 years old um, and any evidence beyond that is, is Satan trying to trick us is just, I think, maybe foolhardy. And I, I, I don't mean to, to sound judgmental in this because it is not my place to say that someone knows less about God than me. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I am a podcaster, decidedly. <laughs> that is what I do. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, I don't even know that I do it particularly well, but I do it. And, and, and you know, it, it is the thing that I do in this world. And so what I, you know, try to do is have thought-provoking conversations with people and and bring up topics that are worth talking about. And I can't think of anything that's worth talking about more than creation. But, you know, there's this flip side of it where you see people taking their literal interpretation of creation and using it to try to explain away these things that we've learned. The Creation Museum is a perfect example of this. It is, at its heart, I think a well-intentioned way of making sense of creation in the literal description of the words of Genesis. The problem with that is the Bible's written in a lot of genres, right? We see the Bible written in uh, various poetry and song, and we have it written in lament, and we have it written in uh, epistles and letters. Uh, we have it written in stories, and there's there's all kinds of different ways that this book comes together. This is not a neat and clean description of the world as we see it today. That's just, if that's how you see the Bible, that's not what it was meant to be. Um, so with all that said, we're going to talk about Genesis, and that is something that a lot of people want to take very literally. And I don't know, I, th I think prior in our prior conversations about this issue— it sounds to me like we kind of both see this maybe in a similar way, that it might be a mistake to try to pull scientific facts out of a book that just wasn't written that way in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things you come across when you come across the more intellectual, well, I don't want to say, I don't want to say that dismissively, but with the, the more academic side of the faith, if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church or... Uh, some of the more higher level Bible commentaries. I, I'm currently going off of uh, Robert Olter's uh, Hebrew translation. And the one thing they will go back and forth is, or the one thing they say over and over is that the Bible is not a science textbook. It is not a cosmological yes. explanation of the world. And you know it's not because the Bible says a lot of things that just we objectively know are not true. This is something Ben, uh, ben Stanhope talks about. I, that's that's going to come back and bite me later. That Ben Stanhope talks about in his book uh, *Misinterpreting Genesis*, where if you read 
the 100% absolute literal description of the cosmology of the Old Testament, you have to assume that not only is the earth flat, you have to assume that this, the sky is an ocean and that hell and heaven are literal places above and below us, which I don't know if, I, I, unless you are in fact a flat earther, I don't know how you <laughs> make that case. You have to, you have to, you, you're not, at that point, you're not only denying carbon dating, you are denying the existence of NASA. You are denying, <laughs> you are like, say, like, you know, this is some like new world order, global elites, you know, they're, they're taking over the world kind of stuff right there. Like the world exists to hide the truth of Jesus's light. And it, it, that's, it, that, that, that worldview just doesn't map onto the world we see. And it makes you have to con to interact with the Old Testament in a way that's a little bit more personable. We have to assume that certain elements, like when they talk about the pillars of the earth or the waters above the sky, they're poetic hyperbole to some degree. They're explaining, you know, the ancient Jews living in the Near East, these are just the kind of cosmologies and understandings of the world that they get. Much like a modern person uses casual Shakespeare quotes without having read a Shakespeare book, they these people were using the colloquialisms of the Egyptians or the Akkadians or the Sumerians and just using it as part of the dialect and using it as part of the way they spoke. And in addition, mm -hmm. addition to that, you have the, the way these books are edited and how the narrative of them flows because it's pretty clear, at least to me, like... The Old Testament was very clearly written, or at least edited, during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And you can tell that because the narrative of the Old Testament from beginning to end, chronologically speaking, is trying to answer the question of how a god would allow bad things to happen to the Jewish people. Yeah. And, it, it, it result, and, it res, and it doesn't resolve initially. It, it has these prophecies where it says, things will get better, you will rebuild the temple, you will come back, everything will eventually resolve into Christ as as we Christians know, but it, it was clear at the time it was written, it was clearly a dialogue by Jewish people who were trapped in captivity and living in this very specific cultural miasma. So there's a lot of archaic references in it. There's a lot of art, uh, strange things that don't really have a clear analog today. There's a lot of words in the, in the Hebrew old Testament that only get used once. So even the Hebrew translators are like, I have no idea what that word means. And, <laughs> Which you know, I hear that all the time when I listen to Hebrew scholars, but it's 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 not just a you you know translate it into English and we have the the pure word of God. Now even even I, Mister Sola Scriptura, will tell you that like will tell you that like this is it is a it is a text that is more complicated than we realize at the moment. We have to address it as it is in a more in a more nuanced way to really fully dig out what it's supposed to be saying. And a lot of it's just overtly satirical when you when you realize that. Yes, and that's that's okay. So um, let's go let's go to the scripture. Let's let's talk about the book itself. Uh, let's read a couple passage from it, and and we'll keep we'll keep talking. But before we we actually read a few passages, what is your preferred translation of the Bible? Uh, I tend to go to the Eastern Standard Version, just as a as, as a principle, I've been told I, by people I respect that it's one of the best English translations. Lately, I've been doing all my Old Testament 
uh, reading out of Robert Alter's Hebrew translation, which is, it, it, if you are, I, I, it, it tends to bug a couple of Christians because it being a, an Orthodox Jewish translation, it basically removes all references to Christ, uh, Christology. So mm. it can, it can be a little bit distant in that sense. But if you just want to understand the theology of the ancient Jews, it's an incredible resource just for having that, you know, pre that, that bronze age perspective where you kind of have all your modern presup uh, presumptions taken out of the mix. Yeah, that's um, that's an important thing to remember, and that's something that a lot of Christians, I think, lose when they um, project everything in the New Testament on the Old Testament, is that the people that wrote the Old Testament were not looking forward thinking this is exactly what's going to happen. They had prophecy. They had ideas that someone like the Christ, someone like Jesus was coming, but they weren't writing this putting little uh, Easter eggs into the text necessarily to say, yes, the Christian church will become the ultimate church and this will be the only iteration of our faith that we know. As a matter of fact, they were spending more time contending with, uh, with competing other gods. And that's something that I want to talk about too, because that is something that is really worth mentioning in the way that Genesis 1 and 2 are written and how they're written is that it's, a, it's addressing the other gods that people knew of and worshipped at the time. So that's really important. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the ESV. I read the ESV on almost every episode. This episode, I'm going to be mostly depending on the New King James Version, not because I think it's a better translation, but because that is my journal Bible. It's the one that has space for me in the margins to write things in the side. So I've got all kinds of notes written here, and I hope to get to them all. But I also found a new tool that uh, this is not a paid uh, advertisement. I'm not paid at all except for the uh, uh, contributions to our Patreon, which go towards editing the podcast. Um, but I found that um, Logos, uh, the Bible study tool that most uh, uh, pastors use in the country to, uh, to and theologians use in the country to do comparative readings and pull different texts and do side-by-side -side readings with, um, has a free version now that you can find. It's in, uh, you know, Apple and Android app stores that you can, um, you can buy additional text to add to it, but it comes built in with a few different translations and some study Bibles. It's very, very cool. I've been a ride or die for the version Bible app for a very long time, and I still love my version Bible app. I use it all the time. Uh, to to switch between translations, but this this Logos app is is cool, and so if anyone's like me, a bit of a Bible nerd, and they want to check it out, I would suggest that you uh, definitely go and do that. Um, so, I guess where do we start is the question, right? But I know where we start. We start with nothing. In the beginning, there was nothing. Here's a question that I've heard a few different people who have talked about Genesis uh, ask that I think is important to ask anybody who wants to talk about this sort of thing. What was in the beginning before the creation of the world? What do you think? My, my priest has a good anecdote on this where he says that at one point Luther was asked this question by a student who was bored. What, what was God doing before the creation of the universe? 
and supposedly Luther turned to him and said, making switches to beat students who ask stupid questions. But <laughs> I, I don't want to completely dismiss the question that as irrelevant because it is an interesting one. I know that there's entire schools of theology among the Calvinists as to what the answer is. I, I know our, our lovely Latter-day Saints friends have a completely different theology of what uh, of what Christ was and, and the other gods were doing before the creation of the earth as we understand it. But for all intents and purposes, we don't know. We don't know. We, we Obviously, we have a little bit of an answer that comes with from Revelations, and we know about the fall, we know about Lucifer. We know that there, there are events that happened before the creation of the earth to some degree, but for all intents and purposes, we don't exactly know how that plays out. We just know, as a, as a matter of dogma, we take it that the earth was created ex nihilo out of nothing. Uh, mm. in, my, in Robert Alter's translation, though, he does throw an interesting wrinkle in that, where he translates the first verse as, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was welter and waste and darkness over the deep. So <laughs> it, it, that's obviously a very political, you know, first couple words there. So yeah, in, in his translation, he's very specifically suggesting that the ancient uh, Jews would not have had an ex nihilo theology as we do. And for it also in, creates the possibility that the earth existed before God began shaping creation, which there have been some some theologians who suggested that the earth sat in a, in a form of chaos for the big, from some undisclosed beginning of time, millions of years in the future. And then he shaped it over six days into a lifeful planet, which that's also, mm -hmm. which modern science would disagree with that too. But it's, it, it's, it, it, when you, it, the, the, the altar translation definitely adds some inter, uh, interesting implications. Although for any sort of philosophical perspective, we have to say ex nihilo, the universe was created from not from out of nothing by God. And even if it doesn't happen on the first day, it's literally speaking, that's still the orthodox understanding of that. There was nothing. And then there was something. Exactly. And I think, um, I actually heard someone bring up this, um, this, uh, the early iterations of the big bang theory that we know of, which is now kind of like this, this pull that a lot of agnostics and atheists use to say, well, if we have this idea and, and one that seems to be supported by science, like how could God have possibly done this, that the Big Bang Theory itself early on was actually something that Christians supported because it pulls what we see in Genesis at the beginning as true, right? We, we see this as a big bang. God, there was nothing, and God created something. The Big Bang Theory doesn't say who made something or where something necessarily came from or an explanation of why it was made. This is, this is the big difference, I think, between uh, biblical texts and scientific proof. Uh, scientific proof and, and science in general as a venture is focused necessarily on explaining uh, how something happened, uh, not who was responsible or why it happened, but how it happened. And that's an important thing for us to do. We're curious people. 
that's written into our code in humanity, that's written into the very first human to be curious, to want to know. That is how we are wired, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But um, the Bible in Genesis is not trying to explain the exact details of how it all went down. It's trying to explain that God was responsible for each one of those things. It's so easy to get hung up on the order of how these things were created. And and if you're generous enough with your reading of the order of these things, they actually kind of make sense, at least the version in Genesis 1. We get a slightly different order in Genesis 2. I'm not even sure we're going to get to that tonight because there's so much to address here. But the order kind of changes up a little bit well, in our slightly more zoomed-in version of Genesis 2. But that, you know, this is not—the focus here is not that— Day one, this happened, and that's needed to be the the only thing that happened that day. It's just explaining that God was doing this in a planned and methodical way. Which, yeah, it is it is more complicated though because there are wrinkles. Like obviously, there's the God created light before He created the sun, which yeah. that's people have been for a long time have been like, okay, how do you how do you score that circle? How do you make that make sense? So, <laughs> The long and short of it is, like, if Ben Sandholm talks about this, the long and short of it is probably just that whoever the author was, he just wanted it to be symmetrical. Like, he wanted there to be kind of this, you know, simplicity to the narrative where there's an order and a structure to it. He said he created this and this, created this and this, created this and this. And they're all, they're all, they're all relatively the same length, relatively the same order. And you you can, you can if you've ever seen the Noah movie from, by Darren Aronofsky, you can, you know, loosely, you know, plug the evolutionary science into it where he says, Oh, he created the, uh, the sea creatures before he created the land creatures. That's how, that's how uh, the Bible describes it, which yeah. more or less, but it, it, there's a lot of weird anachronisms to it. And it kind of, it does kind of bring up the question of what is the author trying to communicate? Because if it is just symmetrical, then what is it? And uh, one of the, one of the better theories I've heard is that this is supposed to be, uh, it, it ties into temple uh, consecration theology at the time, which you were in the ancient Near East, you were supposed to consecrate a temple over the course of seven days. So the, essentially in that theory, Genesis becomes a metaphor that God has, has, has consecrated his creation as his temple. We are, you know, which plays later into what Paul says about you know, our bodies being temples. We are, we are designed to worship the Lord. Our creation is designed to worship the Lord. It, glor- it Its very existence glorifies God. But at the same time, the ancient Jews probably took away that it was a literal six days. So it does. Yeah. It does. T- it, it has these very strange wrinkles to it, where you kind of have to assume that the ancient Jews did think it was literal in some level. But at the same time, it has all this implicit secondary meaning to it where you can see this this richness to it that you, that probably is the more important thing to take away from it. Yeah, the 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 takeaway that I had um when I was reading through this, I was making my little notes in preparation was that the lack of human scientific understanding in writing about creation because this was written by human hand um even the most uh, even the most literal Bible readers wouldn't deny that a human hand took pen to paper, so to speak, yeah. 
and wrote this down. That the lack of human scientific understanding in writing about the creation doesn't make the creation story wrong. It just changes how we should read it. It just changes how we need to interpret it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was wrong that God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't mean that necessarily it was wrong that God created the sun and the moon and the stars. It just means that we also, you know, again, you mentioned earlier that uh, that at the time, the understanding was that the heavens were above and they were surrounded by a dome of water. And, and what we know about after having human beings haven't been in space have known that that's not how the world is constructed. But that does not necessarily negate God being the responsible one or God being the creator. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to that famous apocryphal Yuri Gagarin quote from the first Soviet cosmonaut where supposedly he got to space and he was quoted later as saying, I got to space and there's no God up here, which <laughs> nowadays we would say that's like the most foolhardy way to talk about that because we don't think that, you know, heaven is a cloud floating around in space. Although I'm sure some people do. I guess every, every once in a while on Twitter, <laughs> I come across someone who's like, maybe hell is literally the center of the earth. And I just think, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> magnetism exists. We know it's full of iron. So hell is just a big lava pit, apparently. Okay. Yeah. But... Keep digging, pal. Just keep digging. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get to China eventually, but <laughs> if you don't burn it at first, but it's it, it, you're you have to kind of find a way to integrate what we know about the earth with with this text to get the full meaning of it so one detail that popped out to me that i think is worth mentioning and, and maybe this is like uh i'm being overly scrutinizing of specific wording or or um maybe i'm pulling too much meaning out of uh what was ancient hebrew and the translations that we have of it. But in the original writing of Genesis 1, we have God referred to as Elohim, which is a plural for God. Uh, in the later version of the creation in Genesis 2, we have Elohim Yahweh, which specifies which God and the God and, and creates it more of an individual how do you read, uh, knowing you're a Christian and knowing, um, you know, what we know from the Gospel of John, um, how do you picture, how do you read the creation of the world, thinking of it as a, a, a trinity of creation? Um, I guess not, not necessarily um, how did it happen, but can you visualize it? Can you picture it? I know it's kind of a stupid question, but it's just... Uh, it's always one of those things that's fascinated me. We all have these different visualizations in our mind of how these things were created, even how different miracles, however mundane they might seem to us now, uh, certain miracles in the Bible that seem small to us uh, must have seemed so massive at the time. But something as significant and as foundational as the creation of an object uh, let alone the creation of an object by what is implied to be by committee in the Trinity. What's your vision of this? How do you see it? Well, if you want an additional existential crisis, you, it's it's worth remembering that the ancient Jews did not have a concept of a Trinity as we know it. So it, it takes on a really weird uh, 
context when you realize that it's meant to, that it's plural in the original context. And I, obviously, there are there are academics like Richard Friedman and Mark Smith who have gone into this and tried to kind of exegetically dig out what this is supposed to mean. There's a lot of people that think that the earl the earliest uh, Jews were polytheists. There are people that think that Elohim is both a singular and a plural, so it can just mean either one depending on the context. Uh, or and of course, there's the the modern Orthodox answer that it's plural because it's the Trinity, which yeah, it, it's the that, that's the simplest answer. That's the one that appeals to us. But again, it goes back to that question of authorship. What what would the, the unnamed Genesis author editor? hanging around in the background of the Babylonian captivity. I'm sure there's someone that's going to be mad that I'm not saying Moses wrote it, but <laughs> it's, there's, I, whoever, whoever edited it in the, during the Babylonian Whoever wrote it. Yeah. This person, <laughs> did they, I mean, unless you assume Moses was inspired to know what the Trinity was 5,000 years before uh, Christ, uh, it's it it's it it's it, it offers a lot of interesting questions. Michael Michael Heiser in his books talks uh uh this uh, has what he calls the divine council theory, which essentially suggests that God is the head of a council of angels and lesser spiritual beings, and that when he's saying let us make uh let us let us create that he's talking to the divine council. But again, this it's it, there's a vagary here. It's complicated, but Certainly, I agree that there it is. It is curious to mull over the image of it from the from the orthodox perspective. The imagining how how the Trinity interacted in its creation, because the Trinity is in sublimation to itself. So we imagine. I and John makes it very clear that Christ was directly involved. So he yeah. was there. He had a hand in it. It's likely that when. Uh, if you, depending on how you read uh, Genesis three, whatever version of which, whichever member of the Trinity was the one to descend to the garden, it probably was the incarnation. So it was probably probably Christ. Hmm. But so he, so it's clear he was there. And in if you've read Paradise Lost, he uh, John Milton extrapolates that it would have been Christ. But it's it's very fascinating to kind of imagine what that would have looked like. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine it because God himself is such a, or the, the father himself is such a hard to imagine figure with no, no yeah. image. It's an ethereal mystery. And it is like, that sounds goofy to say, but it, it's, it's true. I mean, uh, there are numerous places in scripture where they say no one has seen God, but then of course, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And so that further complicates things a little bit. But this this little hint that we have about God being plural in the use of Elohim is sort of further multiplied by um, verse uh, 26. This It's really the first time that God um, says anything about God's self, right? We have God did this. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And my note immediately in the beginning was what was what language was god speaking okay let's move past that question. i was gonna it's say a, there's a, a good line in uh, there's a good line in dante's paradiso where uh, the narrator asks adam that like what, what language did you speak in the garden he says i don't know i forgot 
it's not an important question. Moving on. But <laughs> well, it's an unanswerable one, yeah. but it is fascinating to me. But it, but at, at but I will yeah, add though that it that the speaking is a huge theme here because it is it's the, the more than anything else, God is creating through His speech and through His word, and that's that's how creation unfolds before Him. And it's another clue that Christ is part of this because Christ is the Word of God. The Word. Yes. So it's it, it the fact that. God creates through his speech is it's vital in understanding how we're supposed to understand this and how we're supposed to take away this is it's part of how we're supposed you know the idea of creation itself and even something that we you know like in a like in the way Tolkien talks about you know sub-creation it's part of how we are supposed to subsequently create to pour something out of ourselves to create something of ourselves and put it and externalize it it's I, 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 it's, hard, it's hard to put this in, into words exactly what the full implications of that are. Uh, do you mind if I read just um, uh, a few verses? Oh, go ahead. Here? And then, and then I'm going to go back to my, my notes about this. This is, uh, we'll go. I know we should have probably been reading through this whole time, but there's so much to talk okay, about. Okay. Well, here. I mean, I, I, I just, <laughs> I, I'm in defense of the audience. I think, you know, we all we we all know the six days. <laughs> if you've read the bible you've written you know what the six days of creation are and then God yeah, rest so, own, so we know what's happening but just to bring it to mind and just to, just to center humankind because that's who we are we're very selfish and we love to think about ourselves let's skip forward to 26 okay this is uh genesis 1 26 says uh, then god said let us make man in our image according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Um, I didn't, I mean, I was intending to highlight the use of pronouns there, not because I want to make this a conversation about pronouns. We all talk about pronouns way too much in this society as it is today. But, uh, the thing that I want to mention here is this use of first, let us create man in our own image, which reiterates that use uh, of a plural or this image of a plural God of a, tr a trinity of God, at least uh, multiple parts of God, but then that language kind of shifts a little bit. This is a this is a translational choice that the New King James does. It's not something that is necessarily in the in the Hebrew from this. They're trying to clarify uh, what was going on here, but I think as a result, if you highlight the uses of him and them and our and us. It actually becomes more confusing when you try to read through this. Yeah, and I'm I think that's something that can that remains from the original Genesis because scholars generally agree that there were multiple, or it, because it, it was likely uh, that the Genesis was an oral tradition before it was written down. There were multiple hands involved, and so one of the general presuppositions is that the reason why the the, the pronouns change has to do with whoever the author was at that particular day it, it might just be that there's that the different authors had different understandings of 
or a different or a different or a different understanding of the nature of the father, and that might have changed it. But if if understanding it plainly, it definitely makes you wonder the, the degree to which the, the which members of the Trinity are doing what, how God is sublimating himself in these various moments, and how complicated it must be as a translator to take this ancient text. I mean, so. I think a lot of people think of our English translations today as having been passed down from 16 different languages and then suddenly appearing in English, and this is like the best that we can do, right? But most translations use source text, or the closest thing that we have to source text, the same translations that they used to build the, uh, the King James hundreds of years ago are the sources of how we build our modern translations today. It's not as simple as they're taking an older English translation and making it into a newer English translation. Most of these people are literally doing the best that they can with what they have. But you have to understand that the, the, the Hebrew that this was written in didn't have punctuation. It didn't have vowels. It, it is a very difficult language to parse at times. And it had a lot of um, figurative language, idioms, and things that... Um, that we take for granted in English today as just a, this is how we speak and it's it's perfectly intelligible. And then, of course, when you talk to somebody who's tried to learn English as a second language, they go, what are you saying? You people say all these things all the time that you don't actually mean. Uh, this is something that, that we kind of are used to, but we don't think of ancient texts this way. But that's how this was written, too. So there's so much of this that it was so complicated to pull apart. This doesn't mean the translations that we have are bad or wrong, but it does mean that when we pull uh, parts of this out from the English translations that we have, it can make it infinitely harder to to really try to read this in a literal way because how could you? How, how, how could you possibly try to pull something literal, scientific, out of a text that just wasn't intended for it well as our king james only friends will remind us the the one true uh translation has already been gifted to us and <laughs> it was yeah it was much thanks to the anglicans the one true church but you're definitely right there's there's so much just idiom and vernacular we just don't grasp in hebrew i mean I've, there's a reason why i go back to the altar translation it's because so many of our best Hebrew speakers right now are Israeli scholars because this is the only country in the world where Hebrew is spoken as a first language. And in having that, you are getting an extra layer of context and depth to the language you would not get if you didn't speak it. Like even like even in the English language, when we go back and read Shakespeare or Chaucer or the Beowulf uh, poets work, it's incredibly hard. And when we try to do that with a language that's not our own, it's almost impossible. So we have to have that extra layer. Unless you are of the mind that, you know, God breathes everything we need to know through the scripture so we don't have to know everything. And, and, and obviously, it doesn't complicate everything. This is, some, this is one of those things that's worth distressing is that translation is hard but for the most part, there is a fair a fair amount of equivalent, uh, equivalency where you can capture the meaning of a text imperfectly in a way that is good enough. 
95 percent mm. of the old testament is completely legible it's not controversial the problem is just when you come across the weird wrinkles especially if you ever look at the the notes in the bible it'll say things where it'll it'll add the little things like elohim is plural or you know stuff that kind of those kind of these kind of details yeah these the, and so it, it it makes you wonder how much uh, is there archaic theology buried in here or is this just a matter of not being relevant in light of what the the revelation of christ suggests which it, there's a fair argument to be made that that's the case but it, especially since the new testament reframes so much of the old testament in light of itself but trying to iron out a lot of these these hiccups it it, it can it's difficult and it can makes a huge difference when you want to understand the context of what you're supposed to get out of the six day creation. Yeah. I think that there's a difference between saying that. So I've never considered myself to be um, like uh, someone that holds an inerrant view of the Bible. Um, that doesn't mean that I think that um, what we have as a text is uh, inherently flawed and, and wrong and the Bible just flat out, uh, isn't isn't right? Uh, no, that's not that's not what I mean. It just it just means that I hold that there is a possibility that in our attempts to understand the original message that was being conveyed here, that we might have gotten something wrong. That's the thing that always cracks me up about American evangelicals, fundamentalists, is uh, holding the the Bible as inerrant. Uh, in the English translation, in their preferred English translation, and don't get me started about King James only people. <laughs> God bless, God bless you. I love you, but I don't understand it. Uh, is that you? You can't. Um, if you are going to hold to that notion of inerrancy in the Bible, then you are going to hold to God speaking to people in their skills of translation. In the same way that God spoke to Moses when or whoever you want to believe in the different books of Genesis or Deuteronomy or, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, that God spoke to those people who translated things in, in the 20th century the same way that God spoke to uh, the oldest church fathers, uh, to Paul, you know, to John. And that is a, that's a stretch for me. That's a hard thing for me to believe truly in my heart. And, and again, this is not me saying that I don't believe the Bible. I, I believe in my heart that, that Christ is Lord. And uh, yeah, I have no doubts about that at all. But uh, it is you wrinkles, hiccups, like you mentioned. Those sorts of things are the thing that always make me want to go, when my, my, my ears kind of perk up. And I go, wait a second. How are we supposed to read this? And it's not wrong to ask those questions. I wish more people would. I wish more people would would look at, at passages like this, and rather than either going, A, this is perfect, it is uh, exactly scientifically right, and this is exactly the way that everything happened historically, or B, this is nonsense, it's poppycock, I can't believe this, and therefore everything that comes after it is wrong— you can accept that there is an element of mystery, that there's an element of wonder, there's an element of spirituality that goes into the writing of spiritual texts, and therefore, it doesn't need to be read as a textbook. It's not a textbook. Maybe it's, It is the Bible. 
maybe it's the southerner in me at the moment because I'm surrounded by Pentecostals. But I, I, I think there is also a level to which the, as much as we don't want to say that a particular translation is inspired, I think there is a certain level to which the Holy Spirit would uh, intercede in in the mission of making sure that the core message of salvation is preserved in his texts, just because. If the core wasn't there, then salvation would be impossible, or it would just be a complete train wreck. Uh, I mean, as our as our as our Catholic friends are happy to remind us, you know, there's that there's so much chaos in Christianity outside of the authority of the Catholic Church. But <laughs> when you look at individual Protestant churches, there is this kind of integrity to them, where they do preserve the Trinity and the, a lot of these core doctrines even though there is a lot of uh, concern and uncertainty about a lot of the core doctrines. And I think that does translate over into at least the more mainstream translations where for the most part, you can pick up any Bible and still read something that can offer you salvation. And that's not necessarily to say that the, you know, the message Bible is God ordained because good Lord. (laughs) Uh, but at least, I was just going to bring up, so what do you think about the message and the voice? What, do you, what are your takes on that? I, I think an incredibly simple person could read the the message and come away come away realizing that Jesus loves them, which yes. you know, that, and in some way that has, to, yes. that has to be enough for salvation. Yes. I mean, and that, but that is, but that's exactly the point, right? That um, if you get mired in... Um, necessitating the um, literal, uh, chronological, factual, scientific, individual elements of stories that weren't really intended to be read that way, then you will open up a Pandora's box of questions about all of the other details and all of the other things. And, And I just don't think it does your soul any good to um to need to have this be your textbook not now i'm not saying the science is is infallible I, plenty of scientific theories have been proven to be wrong over time our ideas of how different things that were for a long time just uh, the our, our understanding of the heavens is a perfect example of this we have this foolish notion of uh of the earth being the center of the universe. And suddenly that changed and it changed everything about how we understood the universe, the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon, all of it changed how we believed it to be. But before then our understanding was solid in that. And in that way, it's like, let that realm be that realm. And let our spiritual journey, let our spiritual learning, our attempts to connect with God on a spiritual level, let that be what it is. And it's okay to let that be what it is. Um, I'm not sure the point exactly that I'm trying to make here, but it is, it's so disheartening, I think, when people read pieces of scripture that they feel, um, they just, they read it and they go, well, that's either confusing or, or patently false when it comes to you know what I know about uh, you know the facts of the earth, or I can touch this thing and I I can prove that this particular 
thing that I'm reading is wrong. Literalism makes the Bible brittle. It not only makes it brittle, it makes it boring. And I hate that. <laughs> I, mean, I really do. Brittle is a great, brittle is a great word. And I, and I think when you talk to a lot of uh, people who have deconverted, that's the one thing they'll come back to is they grew up in that culture where they weren't well suited to fundamentalist evangelicalism or fundamentalist reformed theology or whatever, whatever variation you're talking about. And they felt choked or constrained or they felt like it didn't represent reality in some way. And I mean, it's, it, it, it's essentially, it's a, it's a completely flat philosophy that doesn't, that, that it's perfectly fine if your, if your theology is just in service to what I, like what I was saying earlier, your daily life application aspects where you just need, mm -hmm. you just want to read the epistles and figure out how you can apply Corinthians to your, you know, your daily habits. It's, that's perfectly fine for all intents and purposes. But anything where you start going into cosmology or scientific material reality or the nature of the Trinity or questions that are a little more complex, you're going to, you're going to hit some road, you're going to hit a lot of roadblocks. And for a lot of people, you hit kind of the end stretch of their faith because they just, they, they just feel like they can't go anywhere with that so they either have to jump ship and become an atheist or they jump ship and go into like some extremely intellectual form of faith outside of it where they go like i i either they like convert to catholicism or they become like an academic and study the faith from just a pure a purely non-literal perspective and they don't really understand yeah. it which i think doesn't really do a service because obviously like we've been saying Genesis is communicating so much. There's a there's a good uh, Jonathan Peugeot video they just put out a couple of weeks ago where he said, you know, it doesn't matter if or did, and I, I'm not gonna say he didn't say it didn't matter, but he he's an Orthodox icon carver, and he says that when you look at the history of the world, everything basically cuts off about 7,500 years ago. Yeah. Which, from, from a purely historical perspective, is accurate. We don't have any history prior to Gilgamesh and the Bronze Age or Whatever, whatever the proof comes before the violence aids. We don't have Stone Age records. We, the world as we know it began in Mesopotamia. It, began, it moved through Egypt and through Samaria and through Judea and then into Rome and spread out into what we now understand as the Christian world. And if you're just going at, at you know, the world history from that perspective, you, it, we understand, yeah, Genesis literally lines up with that. Because this, these events, if you time the chronology, is about 7,500 7, years ago. So there's so much truth in our understanding of how we think about these sorts of things, where you can say, obviously, the, six, the world wasn't created in six days, but this does speak to a, a bunch of assumptions we have about the human history, the universe, our understanding of God, his role, what, how his creation works. And we don't, it doesn't have to be literal for us to take away all these under this theological details that really enrich our understanding of what comes to follow. Now there, now if we, if we wanted to go full into Genesis three and talk about the implications of whether or not Adam had to literally fall in order for Christ to redeem the entire human race, that opens up a whole nother can of worms, but <laughs> For all intents and purposes, 
the fall is something we all reenact. So we all need Christ. It's not just Adam and his descendants. It's easier to, um, yeah, yeah. I, we didn't even get to two, and I just just now seeing we're about in an hour here, so we should probably find a way to wrap up, which I, I wish we didn't have to because I've really enjoyed this conversation. I um, I would like to have you back if you would join me, and, and we can talk again about maybe maybe the parts that we don't feel like we touched on enough, maybe for like a bonus episode or something like that, if you'd, if you'd join me. Oh, sure. We could probably go into Genesis 2 and 3 and kind of just extrapolate further from there. That's That was one of the elements that I was hoping that we'd get to, but this has just been, this has been so great. I, I really, I you know, I don't need to have like a closing thoughts segment of the podcast or anything, but at the end of the day, um, don't let your idea of God be framed uh, better. Don't let your idea of God be confined by what you believe or what we know about science because God is outside of that. Um, in the beginning, if, if, um, you know, if you believe in God, then you believe that God is bigger than time and space. So uh, understand that our understanding of time and space need not confine God and need not confine the story of, of Christ. So, um, I mean, truly, Tyler, thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, it's a lot easier to believe in the resurrection than it is to believe in Noah's Ark. So. Holy cow. I mean, isn't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go, do you have any plugs you'd like to put out there? projects you'd like to send plug your podcast let everyone know where they can hear you yeah uh, just general purpose uh i'm on twitter at antisocial kurt i that's critical without the c at the end of it uh and if you want to follow my stuff most of my stuff gets filtered to that twitter accounts it's it, you can find most of my christian writings on there so definitely go check me out there and and we'll link we'll link tyler's socials in the in the show notes for the episode as well Great. Um, this week's poem is by George Herbert. Oh, that I knew how all thy lights combine and the configurations of their glory, seeing not only how each verse doth shine, but all the constellations of the story. This verse marks that, and both do make a motion unto a third that leaves off doth lie. Then is dispersed, Herbs do watch a potion. These three make up some Christian's destiny. Such are thy secrets, which my life makes good, and comments on thee, for in everything thy words do find me out, and parallels bring, and in another make me understood. Stars are poor books, and oftentimes do miss. This book of stars lights to eternal bliss. Thanks, everybody. I woke up the next morning before my alarm could go off. I was fuzzy from the beer and too tired to get up. I tried calling into my boss, but she wouldn't answer her phone. I can't afford to lose this job, so I put some coffee on. 
I pulled on the same clothes I had on the night before. No one ever saw me anyway. It never mattered what I wore. So I locked the door behind me and I started on my walk along my gravel street from downtown to my work.